Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? Hey, not too much, Michael. You know, although I think we might have to change the name from from on the margin to on the road. This is my my third different spot uh, to do this from. So I'm in San Francisco today. So excited! You are bouncing around. Yeah, what takes you to San Francisco? Uh, I was out at a pension fund meeting trying to convince mm. them to allocate capital to blockchain and crypto. And then I'm, uh, I'm going to hang out with my son and daughter-in-law. They just got a new house here in San Fran. So we do a little, you know, honeydew projects for the weekend. Nice. Amazing. Well, it's a good week to be spreading the good word because uh, it was a good week for, uh, for Bitcoin here. Um, I'm also Absolutely. excited because, you know, we, I got some great Bitcoin charts. I also got this new video set up. Uh, so drop me a link in the comments. Let me know what you think. Uh, I told You Mark, are looking I'm, good, my friend. Sharp. <laughs> Sharp is the word. <laughs> Sharp I tell you, I'm not sure word. I'm not sure I'm good looking enough for the HD level of this camera, uh, but I guess we'll Dude, see. Dude, I have a face for radio. Forget forget <laughs> this video stuff. I have a face for radio. I was uh, I sent a video to our producer who helped me set this up last night, and I literally made that same joke. I was like, I got a face for radio, but other than that, you know, everything is great. Other than that, it's all good. Hey, yeah. give the people what they want. They want high def. <laughs> <laughs> they do. All right, let's get into it this week because we got a big week, a whole bunch of great charts and uh, stories for you this week. One sec. Let me just pull these bad boys up. First first couple charts this week, all about Bitcoin. Obviously, a huge week uh, for the biggest crypto asset. Um, through these two on here, first, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through my thoughts here, and then I'd love to get your interpretation. Yeah. So we're looking at... Um, rolling one month uh, basis on all of basically the large derivative exchanges in Bitcoin. Um, so you're looking at CME at the top, and then you've kind of got Deribit, um, uh, Huobi, Kraken, etc. cetera. Uh, and then on the right, you're looking at uh, open interest on CME. And what's really interesting is that, you know, we've kind of talked in previous episodes about how usually the basis on kind of those offshore semi-regulated exchanges tends to be much higher. And the basis yep. is the difference in between the futures price and the spot price. That has recently flippant, uh, credit to Josh Lim um, at Genesis for calling this out first, uh, but that has actually changed. And now the, the basis on CME, you can see it by that yellow line at the top, has exploded. Uh, and you can also, that's complemented by the graph on the right, which is you just kind of see this explosion of open interest on CME. And what that indicates to me is that you're actually starting to see institutions uh, U.S.-based institutions wade back into the pool of Bitcoin because that's really who would be driving volume on this exchange. What's your interpretation uh, of these charts when you're looking at here? Yeah, I, I think that's that's spot on, Michael. I, I think the you know, people have been throwing around this term "shocktober" that uh, get ready for shocktober and uh, you know, happy Bitcoin Friday, by the way. So another mm -hmm. another good Friday for Bitcoin. Look, I I was trying to make the case yesterday to you know a multi-billion dollar pension fund uh that they need exposure you know they had actually invited me to speak three years ago they do this annual event and three years ago i gave them the get off zero speech and what was amazing is you know they obviously didn't do anything uh and i said look if, if you had taken one percent from your fund not not 10 or 15 or 20 just one percent and put it in the fund uh, the pension fund would have made 10% compounded per year instead of 9.1 for the last three years. 
So that 1% would have increased the entire multi-billion dollar pension fund by 10% return. And that's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, Bitcoin prices were $6,500 back then. And uh, I said, and if you would have put it in our venture fund, which is up 7x since then, you would have had a similar, similar outcome. And I think they started to get that. And in fact, so much so that the executive director came up to me after the break and said, you know, you know, the blockchain fund's not dead. It's not dead. We're still talking about it. You know, not everybody's on board. And so I, I think there's a lot of pent up demand. I think you're, you're seeing some real demand here. And, you know, institution is a funny word. So, you know, as a Stanley Druckenmiller, an institution, mm. well, yes and no. I mean, he's individual. Right. He's an individual with institution like capital but he would show up in this data or Paul Tudor Jones or, you know, a big hedge fund, you know, that's different to me than the pension funds, you know, Catherine Molnar, the, the visionary CIO and Andy Spellner um, at Fairfax. I mean, those, those guys were early. They were there in 2018. They saw the crypto light. They, they got out ahead of it and, and their pensions have, have outperformed because of it. Um, so I think, the FOMO is beginning, but it hasn't even started. Like I, I keep quoting everywhere I go, you know, at, at DAS with you guys a couple of weeks ago, you know, I've been talking about for, for, you know, a couple of years that, you know, we're so early. It's like the national anthem just started and someone else at the, the conference said, no, the players haven't even entered the stadium. So uh, maybe the players are starting to enter the stadium and some of those players are going to be some of the, the, the veterans from from the institutional side. Yeah. And I think it's important to call out kind of different segments of this market in general. Like, in, in my opinion, Bitcoin is kind of the only institutional crypto asset. Maybe ETH is starting to get there. But uh, I think one of the reasons that we've sort of traded water or tread water uh, rather for the last couple of months is because there have been kind of these larger macro concerns, everything that's going on in China, the ESG narrative. And when I look at this, I think one of the things that comes to my mind is maybe we've punched through some of that and you're starting to see institutions wade back into the space. Um, Another couple of interesting charts here uh, in general is uh, we're looking at BTC versus the S&P, so BTC against equities, uh, and also uh, Bitcoin's seasonality index. So the other thing that's interesting, right, and I'm sure I've, I've also heard you talk about this as well, is kind of the uncorrelated nature uh, of Bitcoin, uh, especially when it comes to equities. And, you know, I'll be honest, for the last like year or so, it hasn't really necessarily looked like that. But at the same time that we've seen uh, the S&P and particularly the NASDAQ sell off, that's coincided with this latest run in Bitcoin, which is pretty interesting. Um, at the same time, you know, you, you called it Shocktober. I've actually called it October myself. October. Um, I like that. October, I like October yeah. better. October. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, the Q4 tends to be really good for Bitcoin, and we are starting to see that pattern uh, resume. So, I don't know. Just some more context, I guess, for this. No, really, run. really important. And, you know, the thing about correlation is mm. correlation is really a long-term indicator. You know, people try to look at, at short periods of time and say, oh, look, they're, they're correlated. Look, in, in um, certain situations, assets can become and do become highly correlated, uh, even if they're, they're very uncorrelated. You know, stocks and bonds uh, sometimes become very correlated, or gold and stocks, uh, or Bitcoin and stocks. Well, why? Well, if you think about how markets ebb and flow, right, in, in just normal functioning markets, 
people are buying and selling the things that that they want and they're they're basing those decisions on different fundamental drivers and so what happens is the assets tend to reflect different drivers right stocks have different drivers and bonds have different drivers than, than crypto but in extended moves either up or down everybody's doing the same thing for different reasons called momentum uh, or force so in the up movements things start to get correlated because everybody's just piling in and they're just piling into quote-unquote risk assets uh, but then in in difficult periods what what has happened you look at this like March of 2020 you know stocks got crushed during the COVID crash but then bonds went down and gold went down and Bitcoin went down women those are supposed to be uncorrelated no 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 in a liquidation that is basically leverage coming out of the system you don't get to sell what you want to sell you sell what you have to sell and so the liquid stuff actually does worse than the stuff that, that needs to be sold. And I think that was the case um, definitely then. I think it was the case again uh, a couple months ago in the, the April sell-off. But here what I think you're seeing is a lot of the really nasty leverage got taken out of crypto. Doesn't mean there's still not people doing stupid stuff with 100 times yeah. leverage, there are. But most of that, at least my perception, most of that got taken out. And, and I think the other thing you're seeing is there's a, a classic movement of where people hold their, their coins. And if, if they hold them uh, in cold storage or you know, physically in their, in their hand, so to speak, then they're probably not likely to sell. If they move them on, onto exchanges, they're probably gonna transact. And so we did see a pretty nice movement of a Bitcoin off exchange. And I think that could be part of the reason that you're seeing this, this divergence here is, look, stocks, you know, particularly US stocks, particularly US tech stocks, I mean, are just so egregiously overvalued. It's just, it's crazy. I mean, worse than 2000 in just silly town. Um, can't tell you when that's gonna change. Maybe it's starting to change, um, but man, the government is gonna do whatever it takes. A friend of mine just reached out to me from, I shouldn't say a friend, a colleague uh, from CNBC just reached out if I wanted to have a quote this morning on you know, market resiliency. I go, it's not market resiliency, right? It's desperation by the power to keep financial assets levitated. So you saw the guard this morning come out and say, oh, well, you know, it, it might not be prudent to, to taper quite yet. Really, Christine, we've had zero interest rates for 12 years. You tell me that we need emergency rates, like levels from the global financial crisis. What happened to the greatest economy ever? What happened to this big comeback? What happened to the everything's great and happy and we should all be out and spending our money? You don't need emergency stimulus for that. So I think there's just a lot of um, potential downside pressure in traditional assets. And that could find its way into the, the new safe haven. Nobody likes to think of it that, but I, I actually think it, it really is. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one one framework as well that's that's been really helpful to me. And this next chart, we're kind of looking at 
uh, Bitcoin bull runs, however many days out from the happening, it goes, you know, back to 700 and then forward 700. And, uh, you know, to give everyone some context, uh, you know, era one is kind of the 2012 uh, to 2014 run. Era two is you're looking at, you know, 2015 to 2018. And era three is what we're currently kind of experiencing right now. Um, and, you know, Lynn Alden, in the first ever episode of the show came on. And uh, I really like that point you made about, like, uh, you know, correlations that kind of line up around smaller timelines. Her framework, right, is that the entire market kind of still trades around Bitcoin. And the, the overall, the most important thing to understand is the happening cycle that Bitcoin trades around. Um, and there, you know, there are kind of these Bitcoin will get correlated to different assets over periods of time. Right now, the focus is on equities. Uh, there's also a focus on interest rates and kind of what the 10 year is doing as well. But overall, the, the largest pattern that Bitcoin and therefore the rest of crypto tends to follow is this um, is around the happening. And I think that's one of the most important things to understand. And, and if you look, honestly, you know, I know even just a couple months ago, there's this question, are we still in a bull market? Uh, have, you know, we've never had a 50, 60% sell off in the middle of a bull market. Certainly looks like we're on track uh, for what Bitcoin has done in the past. Um, so I don't know if you have any opinions looking at this chart, but uh, I know I, 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 I definitely do. And, and look, I, I have, you know, wondered out loud much to many maximalists uh, chagrin that this cycle might have been truncated by, you know, Michael Burry and, and others who, who got short uh, with all the crazy run up in, in January, February. And, and that clearly uh, seems to have, have not been the case given the, the tremendous bounce off the July lows However, if you, if you think about this chart in particular, and you look at the, the peak in, in the 2013 cycle, we're past that peak, right? Uh, in terms of timing. If you look at mm -hmm. the peak from 17 that everybody likes to focus on, we're right there. I mean, we're you know, within days, weeks from that December 18th fateful day uh, mm. where, you know, we hit 20,000 and, and then it was all downhill from there. Um, and so I, I do have some concern that cycle will repeat because if it does, there's not a lot of gas left in the tank, quite honestly. Uh, yeah. and, and the thing I, I keep asking people to, to give me, uh, an answer to is, is where is the incremental demand going to come from you know we all know the supply story but in order for price to go up which everybody wants you have to have incremental demand more money has to come into the ecosystem and in the absence of of the massive leverage pump that we've seen on multiple occasions in the past it's still a long slog to get people in and you know a dollar here a dollar there with bitcoin tipping isn't going to do it uh, you need real institutional adoption, as you said. You need, you know, kind of an acceptance. And so that's a long way of saying it's possible that, you know, this is kind of it. And now we're going to head into the consolidation phase. And the thing I, I do worry about a little, not a lot, um, you know, and, and I was corrected the other day on Twitter. Someone, you know, I said, name somebody who saw the drop uh, from kind of August to November of 2018. 
you know, we kind of crashed from 20 to 10 and then we rallied back and then we, we kind of fell quickly to six. And then mm -hmm. we were stumbling along at six and everybody's like, oh, that's the bottom, that's the bottom, that's definitely the bottom and everybody. And then we went to three. And yep. that's the part that I, I do worry about. Because if you, if you did that same analysis with this cycle and you said, okay, the cycle is over and now we're going to go into this consolidation phase and we're going to retrace back to the, the previous highs, you know, that means we go into the 20s um, and, it would be, and it would be rapid and it would be painful. And I'm not calling for that. That's not my point. But, uh, you know, tra oh, so, so the point is somebody said, well, Travis Kling called it. I'm like, well, I, I, I do kind of remember him talking about that. So uh, I may have to give Travis a call and, and ask him what he thinks. Um, but I, I'm, I'm still, look, I'm still long. Uh, we are still long. And I'm still positive. But I, I do think this chart makes me a little more nervous about where we are. Now, one flip side. One thing you notice between the orange line and the blue line is there's like this, this movement forward. One argument you could make is that uh, in 13, right, there's still very few people in this space. I mean, honestly, there was just almost yep. nobody. Uh, 17, yeah, they're, they're a decent number, but still pretty small. This time, um, there's actually a lot of people. And so is it possible that the cycle won't be truncated, but it'll actually be extended because there's people that started the process of adoption three months ago, six months ago, that are finally starting to make their allocations. Hmm. No, that's a logical thought. My, my, so I, if I could present a slightly more optimistic counterpoint, um, you know, I think one of the things that's maybe... I, you know, I waffle on, on this quite a bit, to be honest, because I, I don't have a deep set of conviction. I'm not a trader, right? I, I don't look at charts and I'm not, I've got no technical analysis principles in mind. I do the same thing that every other middle IQ person does. And I kind of look and I'm like, well, this looks like a pattern. That looks like a pattern. Um, what I will say, though, is I do think what might be a different factor in this particular run-up is that crypto has advanced, maybe not entirely to the world stage yet, but there are larger macro factors here than just kind of retail mania and sentiment. And we've never had um, something like what happened with China or the comments from the SEC and, and stuff like that. These, these are new developments. So it would make sense to me that that large narrative pushdown and those out, the outflows that were driven by those narratives might have extended the bull market in general. And, you know, if you just kind of do some pretty basic back of the envelope math um, in the, you know, the bull run for 2013, 2017, uh, the, the whole market cap tends to, it does something like between a 30 and a 50 X, right? And we haven't really done that yet. And um, I think you could make the argument that, well, maybe we'll never see that type of uh, volatility again, because the space was just much smaller at that point. It took much uh, less inflows of capital to make those types of price changes. But at the same time, you know, you've never had the amount of real projects and developments um, that you have now. So I could kind of see it going either way. Um, I will say I've, you know, we've kind of talked about this before in terms of my own personal content diet. I love listening to traders. They are like the most interesting people uh, for me to hear talk to. I, I consume right. tons of podcasts right. with them, but they're also the least useful for me.
because they just psych me out. They look at charts. They're operating on a super short-term time frame. I have no edge there. So the only thing that I can do, I'm just speaking for myself, is to take a long time, like a long time horizon, and like yeah. try not to get too sick over the you know face ripping volatility. Well, a couple that things, we all to that, Mike. Mm -hmm. Trying to in extrapolate two observations as if there is a trend—that's folly, right? I, it's possible. It's possible yeah. that the third repeats. But there's no logical statistical reason why this should repeat. Now, there is a logic, right? There is a logic to the happening cycle. Mm -hmm. There's an absolute logic. And it's, it's actually elegant in the design of the system in that by reducing the block rewards, you are incenting price movement upwards which creates momentum, right? Because it, the costs don't change. The miners' costs don't change on the day of the halving, right? Their electricity costs don't change. Their, their rent doesn't change. And so they need a higher price in order to incent sale. And so you're actually seeing that, right? You're seeing miners holding coins a little longer. Um, now that is a speculation. But it makes some sense. And I think the, the, the chart here says that that's what happens. Post happening, you get this, this gradual ramp. The, the speculative ramp, so that, that last you know, upward movement in the blue tier, in the, in the, the first one, and then the, the, you know, we all remember November, December of 2017. Mm -hmm. Those aren't fundamental. Those, those are pure speculation. 100% speculation. And and that's fine. I, I'm not saying that's evil or bad, but it, that is speculation. And that's why the price historically has always gone above fair value. So if you go back to uh, you know, my favorite chart from 2014, which is the original Metcalf's Law parabola, you know, it basically said $10,000 of network value, uh, $10,000 per Bitcoin network value, on November 6th, 2017. Pretty good. We hit that within six days. But then we went right to 20. Well, 20 didn't mean the value went up. It was just the price went up. The price right. of, of the speculators um, you know, got pushed. And so it was unsurprising that it was going to crash back down to fair value. Fair value by mid kind of 2018 was in the, the, the low to mid teens. And, and we went way below that, right? All the way down to 3,200. Uh, but then it wasn't surprising we came back to that and, and that number keeps going. Now, the, the problem with that original chart is it, it says 100,000 July of this year. So everybody's like, oh, well, look, we're, we're way under the value. Well, Tim Peterson from N Squared Crypto did an update to that original graph where he said the decay rate might have been wrong, and here's my view. His Metcalf's chart, which has been deadly accurate, um, mm. says more like 30K is fair value. And so if we think about 2X of fair value as the speculative, you know, that would put us at 60, which is kind of where we got. Yep. And so could we get back to that 60 level by the end of the year? Sure. But are we going to stay there? That one's tougher. So 
I don't have an answer, but I, I do think that um, we're seeing a lot of fundamental forces that are positive. Uh, there are increasing numbers of traders who are active here. You know, you, is what I was, I was talking to um, a guy yesterday who was one of the original employees at, at Susquehanna. And he was just telling me how much capital and man, man, woman power they have put in place in crypto. So there's, there's a lot of really smart money trading this. Uh, and I think that probably sets a different floor. I don't know that it necessarily guarantees us higher, but I think it sets a different floor. So I'm less concerned about, about the super crash than I am trying to find the incremental capital that's going to drive us higher. Yeah, I think so too. We could keep talking about this all day, but I do want to get to some of these other uh, these other charts here too. But look, it's it's all food for thought, and I think you called it out exactly right. We're literally operating off two data points here. There's no rational reason outside of the happening why this would all necessarily repeat. Um, but you know, just food for thought. Um, okay. This uh, so this comes to us courtesy of uh, Charlie uh, Bellello. Um, this is asset class total returns from 2011 till now. Just kind of interesting to look at all of this uh, in general. I mean, the Bitcoin numbers are just uh, pretty silly. <laughs> you know, it's like annualized its returns, you know, 201%. Uh, if you look at some of the other uh, big, you know, um, you know, second and third place, uh, you're looking at uh, the US NASDAQ 100, which has done super well, and then just US large caps uh, in general, which is the, SP, uh, the S&P. Um, you know, there's, there's, a lot, there's quite a bit of overlap, frankly. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the yeah. top five companies yeah. in the S&P, uh, I'm pretty sure all of those trade in the NASDAQ as well. Maybe Apple's in the Dow. I can't remember. But um, yeah, I mean, to your point, just tech has had such an unbelievable run of it for such a long time. And, you know, honestly, if, if you want um, helpful context for me, you know, I've, I've consumed a lot of uh, Grant Williams uh, work and podcasts on this. He's got a great episode with Jim Grant that will give you some unbelievable context for just investing over a long period of time. Um, I think the concept, like we operate in crypto, so that's the idea of how do you wrap your mind around an exponential growth curve. But I will say mm -hmm. the power of mean reversion is one that's, man, that's, that tends to be pretty consistent throughout history. So, um, yeah, I guess just yeah, something to consider. Yeah, there's a couple of things about this. So, so one, this is actually a, a pretty bad chart crime, um, in the sense that, um, well, I shouldn't say it. I, I was going to say, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. Um, but I mm. think what he's trying to do here, 11, 12, 13, 14, no, it's, 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 uh, it's 10 and three quarters years, right? It's not, it's not, it's not a decade. And so there's a little cherry picking of it. And, and why 2000, why don't we go all the way back to 2009 when Bitcoin started? I, you know, it's probably not a Bitcoin chart. Uh, and I like Charlie's work a lot. But I think part of the problem with this is, you know, the first five or six years of Bitcoin to me are they're not they're not useful, uh, and that doesn't mean to say that people who who participated then, you know, they don't get all the props and and, and all the the attaboys, attagirls, but they don't count. Institutions could not have put money in. Uh, it just wasn't it wasn't an investable asset. Uh, yep. until probably 2016, you know, you just couldn't have put much money to work. So I would 
take those early three years or four years just off. And when I talk about Bitcoin, I actually do this. I talk about the last five or six years. And the reality there is it's still a great number. It's still a great compound return. It's still better than everything else. And I was at this pension fund meeting yesterday and they spent, you know, seven hours and they talked about everything, right? From bonds to stocks, to interest rates, to inflation, to real estate, to infrastructure. And we got to the the end and, and I said, I have three questions. So one, why would pension fund ever own bonds here? Right. You're guaranteed to fail. Yep. No, you got return free risk uh, and nothing but downside Two, why was there no discussion of the best performing private asset class, venture capital? You talked about private equity, mm. you talked about private energy, you've talked about private debt, you talked about infrastructure, never talked about venture capital, which is weird. And three, why was there no discussion of digital assets? I mean, that just makes no sense. And so. Uh, I think part of it is no one wants to look at this. No one wants to look at this number and say, oh yeah, you know, how, how did we avoid you know, the, 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 the best assets? So for me, in trying to make the institutional case, I really want to talk about the last five plus years uh, where it was institutionally viable and uh, safe for people to think about putting their capital in, right? No institution was going to meet somebody on the corner and exchange local bitcoins. It just wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, I, that's totally fair to call out as well. I just think, you know, I think it looks like he sorted this by, um, I was trying to get, get a sense. It looks like he sorted it by 2021 year to date yeah. returns in general. Yeah. Um, just an interesting chart to kind of look at and be aware oh, of. Oh no. And, and I love that. Like I look at, I, I tell people all the time, um, Wait, how was was Bitcoin the best performing asset in 2020? Right? It was, oh, it was tech. Well, no, it's Bitcoin. And and how about 2019? It was tech. No, no, it was Bitcoin. And how about 2021? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's most years, right? Of the last five or six years, most years Bitcoin has been the best performing asset. Yet, very few people still have exposure. It's a really tiny yeah. number when you think about it. Yeah. No, it, it's super tiny. Uh, you know, that, that chart that Raul uh, over at Real Vision loves to show, which is just the growth rate of users in crypto, uh, super encouraging, especially when you compare it to the early days of the internet. Uh, but yep. yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. All right. This is a, this is a very interesting chart. Uh, shout out to Will Beaumont, um, our researcher, for pulling this up. This is a UN Food and Agricultural World Food Price Index from 20, uh, 2006 to 2021. This is going to segue into kind of the latter half of this conversation, more kind of macro stories here towards the end. Um, but if you want an indication of why food prices are so important, again, second reference to Grant Williams. He did a great episode with Russell Clark on the importance of food prices in general. But, uh, you know, Russell's kind of key insight uh, was that the, the, the price of food is re- it's, it's kind of funny that we exclude food price from CPI. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, no, it's CPI not funny at all, Michael, remember, remember what CPI is. CPI is not a measure of inflation, right? <laughs> Again, we, we fooled everyone into thinking CPI is a measure of, uh, what we, what the government uses to make cost of living adjustments in entitlement programs. It is 
engineered to be a low number. I mean, there is there is just nothing about it that mm. is is real or actual. You know, the, the line I used to quote all the time is, you know, as long as you don't heat or cool your house, send your kids to college, uh, buy food at the grocery store, um, you know, buy insurance, uh, it, it, as long as you don't do any of those things, then there's no inflation. And that, this idea that, that food and energy should be excluded from an inflation measure, it's just folly. And it's because, look, if you had to actually increase Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid payments by actual inflation, there's a guy shadow stats um, that, that tracks this. And if you went back and calculated inflation the way they did in the 80s, I think we're at eight and a half or nine percent. If you calculate it the way we did um, even 15 years ago, before they made the big change to owner's equivalent rent, you know, we'd still be at four or five percent. So that's just not going to happen. So they're going to, again, torture the data until it confesses to, to get this. And Russell's a good friend, long term. We've been long term investors. He's the best. And his discussion of this was, was spot on, like almost to the day when he started talking about this. And uh, this is just getting started, right? We Mark, haven't even I gotta, thought about the implications. I, I got to start checking with you before I start referencing all these people. I forget that you know literally everyone. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, old. No. Come on, I'm old. It, it, it's the benefit of being old. And look, Russell is, I think he's one of the best short sellers around. I mean, all mm. deference to Mark Cahoyes. Um, but Russell's the best. And I said he's, he's, He's like John Burbank in that he is, you know, paying homage to John here, being in San Francisco, although now John's in London um, mm. with his new baby. But um, they are original thinkers. They are, they are what we should all aspire to be, orthogonal thinkers. They, they, they think differently. They don't just accept what is put out there in the media or it's put out there in the popular press or what is consensus. They actually try to think differently. And uh, if you do that, you can come up with, with interesting original insights and you can you know, be prepared. But this, this movement here uh, that you're, you're highlighting, um, you know, again, if, if you're a technical analyst, you'd say, oh my God, this is the greatest cup and handle uh, pattern I've ever seen. And we're about to go sky high. But the real reason we're about to go sky high is uh, look what happened to natural gas prices. And that is the primary uh, ingredient in ammonium fertilizers, nitrogen-based fertilizers, which are used to grow corn. So now all these farmers all over North America are going to have to decide, hmm, do I want to plant corn? Do I want to plant beans? If I plant corn, i got to buy fertilizer, which is like two or three times more expensive. I may want to plant beans because I don't need the fertilizer. What's that going to do to the corn supplies? It's going to change them. What is corn used in? Well, things like ethanol and plastics and you know, a lot of our water bottles now are, are plant-based. So there's a whole bunch of implications that people just don't think about. And um, once a price spiral starts to occur, it's really tough to tame. 
Yeah, I, I just think in general, and like this is going to segue into, I want to talk about the energy crisis that's going on in China right now. But like in, inflation, if, if you really zoom out and try to think about what that is, why it's concerning from a first principle standpoint, it's when costs rise above increases in wages, right? So that generally it acts as a tax on folks. So yeah, I totally agree with you. To, to, to exclude the volatile prices of energy and, and food, that's, that's a lot of people's cost buckets, right? And food is the one thing that everyone needs, no matter what, right? So you should just look at this graph and think this is a tax. Uh, and especially this is a tax that's going to hit the lower income bracket of folks. And honestly, so I, I just want to set some context here for this next chart. We talk about housing a lot. This is the slide that we showed in last week's roundup. We looked at uh, a lot of U.S. home pricing stats. This chart, I, I think I tagged you in this on Twitter, blew me away, which is the ratio yeah. of ho house prices to income by city. And here it is like San Francisco and London, you know, looking crazy at eight to nine times yearly income. Look at these numbers on Chinese cities. In Hong Kong, it is 46, 46. Yeah. I mean, it's seven times more expensive to own a home in Hong Kong than it is in New York. I mean, that is, I mean, I, yeah, I was completely floored by this graph. Um, and, uh, you know, all of this is kind of leading up to what is, Becoming sort of a dire situation, honestly, over in China. And I want to connect that to a couple larger picture uh, things. But basically, there's, there's, it looks like there's a huge energy crisis that's going on over in China. Um, a huge part of that is just coal inventory in general, which is at uh, basically multi-decade lows in terms of their inventory. And it's causing a panic over there. Um, two reasons why this is really relevant and important. If we zoom out for a second, and by the way, there's, there's a focus on uh, China here. I will say this is going on kind of all over the place. So you just called out um, natural gas uh, prices, which are absolutely yep. nuts. Uh, but also, I mean, there's, uh, you know, the same shortage in, in China is going on over in India uh, as well uh, for coal. Um, we're also, uh, you know, and that's impacting growth, right? Uh, so inflation, it's impacting growth. And also, I don't know if you just saw, there was a headline about, uh, you know, China sending up a record number of, um, you know, I'm literally blanking on the name, but uh, planes uh, into yeah. uh, Taiwanese airspace. And sure. th this this is not my original thought. Uh, this person is asked not to be named, but I just want to this is, this is uh, another person's line of thinking I want to give credit to, which is basically that as the situation gets uh, more dire over in China, Xi, one of the, the strategies for remaining in political power is to kind of escalate tensions right with Taiwan to kind of distract uh, from the domestic situation at home. So it has all these impacts for growth. Uh, it has all these impacts for like just global uh, stability in general. I don't know, Mark. I mean, what do you think about kind of the energy situation, uh, growth over there, and, and especially this kind of uh, budding tension in between uh, U.S. and Taiwan? Look, uh, the law of unintended con consequences is, is writ large here. So, so we had this global response, you know, to the, to the pandemic that, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, although a lot of people would have said with the benefit of foresight, was mm. just a really dumb idea. And, and it's dumb on, on so many levels. One, it, it right, contradicts how, you know, human beings have dealt with viral infections for thousands of years. Um, two, it has to do with uh, an interconnected global network of supply chains uh, is fragile, right? Yep. And 
you know, people forget how close we live to the edge. I don't know if I've said this with you, but I've told the story of, we had an ice storm in uh, North Carolina a number of years ago. And, you know, we're down without electricity for seven days. Yeah, first couple days, no big deal, right? House is fine, you know, you got enough firewood. Then you run out of firewood by about the fourth day. And now the refrigerator is looking a little empty, but there's no food in the store because you can't get in the store because you can't get the door open. It's like the Facebook thing, right? Facebook had other servers. They just couldn't get to the other servers because they, the login was tied to Facebook, shockingly. So, you know, the lack of redundancy in supply chain uh, is being felt everywhere. And whether it's, you know, trying to buy a car or trying to buy a bike for your kid, you know, there, there's, those are little things that are, they're inconvenient. But when it talk, when you talk about food or, um, you talk about energy, uh, look, there's this, this whole thing about climate, right? And, right. you know, oh, coal is bad for the climate. Okay. That, 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 that's a conclusion you could draw. Now you, you could actually look at it differently and say, well, how do we know over a 10 year period, um, if something is a thousand year trend, how do we draw a conclusion over a one, two, five, 10 year period? It's a different way of thinking about it. And, you know, there's also no school of thought, and it's something I actually ascribe to, that, you know, solar activity really drives global temperatures more than anything else, right? You know, big nuclear reactor in the sky, if it's really hot and pumping out a lot of solar activity, we get higher temperatures. When it's not, we get cooler temperatures. And you know, there's actually a very nice paper on this that talked about you know we were likely to have a pandemic in 2019 uh, because the the solar activity was lower, and that's what happens, right? It's how the Great Plague got started with the Grand Solar Minimum. There's all kinds of stuff that. You know, people overreact to one piece of information and it goes viral on the internet and everybody gets excited. So China shut down a whole bunch of mom and pop coal miners, you know, for safety concerns, for environmental concerns. You know, they're building a lot of nuclear energy, but some of it didn't come online. And to your point, now they have rolling brownouts and they have, you know, on the, on the verge of crisis. They th- throw on top of that, that you know, oil price uh, changes because of the lockdowns and supply and demand issues. You got transportation issues. You know, look at look at the harbor in, in LA and just what happened with the, the ship dragging the anchor and, and causing the leak in the in the pipeline. Right. Um, so there's just all these things that get you know, and they start to snowball and. How bad is it going to get in China? It, it could get bad. And, and you're absolutely right. Governments, it's not just China, right? The United States, Russia. Right? Remember when Russia had um, their big recession uh, around uh, global financial crisis? What did they do? They started dropping bombs in Syria. Why? Because you fixed GDP. And whenever we've had uh, a setback, we just find someone else, you know, find another desert to drop bombs in. They're like, oh, that's so cynical. I'm like, check it out. Go back and look at when we pick someone to, you know, beat up on. Um, 
and we come up with a reason, you know, weapons of mass destruction that don't exist or whatever it is, and it's good for our GDP. Look, defense spending is, is really good for GDP. So would it be surprising at all to see Xi pump up defense spending to get their GDP up? No, no different than what the US or the Russians or the Europeans or anybody does. So governments love to spend money. Well, just look, just look at, look at the um, infrastructure bill that we're talking about, three and a half trillion dollars. Has anybody seen a list of what they're going to spend the three and a half trillion on? Oh, three and a half trillion. We've got to spend three and a half trillion. Well, why? And like, who's going to, who's it going to go to? Oh, it's going to go to a bunch of people who paid a bunch of money into the lobbies to get special allocations. Oh, don't look at that. Not that I'm Honestly, about that. Not that you're saying, yeah, no, no strong opinions. I, you know, on the, on the climate thing, I guess... I don't have any strong, uh, I have no edge, right? I, I don't really have much to contribute to that discussion. What I do think, though, is that I think one thing that troubles me a little bit when you look out into the world uh, in general is I'm starting to see ideology trump um, pragmatism uh, and, and fact-gathering. And that's a pretty concerning development when you look at history, um, and you could go and look back. We've talked about the Cultural Revolution in China, but you can kind of look at what happens. Um, and by the way, people corrected me on this. I was incorrect in our last roundup. I was getting equality and fairness confused, actually. I, right. They are right. different concepts, right? And um, right. if you have a fair system, then it's going to wind up looking unequal. And if you have a system where equality is at the center of everything, it's going to be unfair. And you actually yeah. need a rigid authoritarian regime to enforce something where you have fairness uh, or uh, equality, geez, at the, at, the, at the heart of everything. Well, um, Michael, I just had a really interesting conversation with this, um, with what I'll call a philosopher king yesterday, uh, asset manager, does, does mm -hmm. private investing uh, here in California. Really, really smart guy. Um, but he has his hobby studies philosophy and all the things you're talking about are exactly at the root of what is going on right now that there is a there is a philosophical uh, cabal that that believes in this uh, authoritarianism at the root to provide equality so it's 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 another form of, of Hegelian socialism or Marxist socialism uh, disguised as you know modern economic theory, and yeah. and it's it's some bad shit. I mean, yeah. it's it's really some scary stuff. And I think you summarized it so well. Is is when ideology becomes the focus, uh, you can get extremes. And I think you know you're seeing that right now. Look, a lot of people have different views on China. I, I think what's interesting about about Xi is is he he's upfront that everything that he does is all about philosophy. Right? He believes in the heavens mandate. Right? He believes that that Confucianism that China should be the superpower. Right, and and everything in their thirty year plan is about achieving this return to, you know, 1800, the last 2000 years, China's been at the top. He believes that, that the Chinese are deemed, you know, from up above 
that they should be at the top. So um, now, do I think people in the U.S. have similar beliefs? Absolutely. There's, there's a group of people that absolutely believe that they're doing all this stuff, you know, locking us down and forcing us to have papers and, and restricting movement and, and all, it's, it's all for your own good. Nope, it's for power. And we're at a very, very um, tenuous juncture because we globalized which meant we became interconnected and dependent on one another, right? Adam Smith, Invisible Hand, Comparative right. Advantage, all the good things. Right. And we actually have a pretty nice life around the world, right? We raised hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty. We have a pretty nice life for most people. Doesn't mean there aren't people that are suffering. There are, you know, but we have lots of philanthropic organizations that are trying to help that. And we got, we got lots of, of good stuff. If you suddenly go the other way and go back to these nationalistic, kind of independent, I, I just think it, it breaks. And we're seeing it break mm -hmm. in lots of different places. And I, I just think it's a, we didn't plan to fail, we failed to plan, right? We just decided, right. oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna create a, a Cold War 2.0 with China. Because we need an enemy. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what implications does that have? We outsourced basically all of our manufacturing base to China over the previous 30 years. So maybe there's some implications there. So yeah. I don't know. We're, we're at a very, very strange junction. I don't think it's super dire yet. But to your point on the food prices, um, there's some scenarios where it could get just painful. Right? Yeah. Especially for... Unfortunately, the the average person, right? Because the average person, they don't own a lot of financial assets. They don't own a lot of property. They don't own a lot of things that you know, everybody's all excited that they're rising in price. But it's money illusion. It's just you know, housing yeah. prices. That chart you show that's, that's not real. That's not economic value. Houses don't grow. Right? They actually wear out. You got to work on them. What, what, right. what happens is the money that you're buying with is devaluing. And there's a race to the bottom globally to devalue your currency to try to take share of a shrinking pie. And that is a very dangerous place to be because I defy anyone. I've, I've said this on Twitter. I've said it on TV. I defy anyone to tell me one example where any country profitably spent and printed money that led to long-term prosperity. I'll wait. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, 
everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it from my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. You know, the reason I tend to tie things back to philosophy and history is because that's my interest and that's my my background in general. And just to frame for everyone why, why do we talk about the things that we talk about on the show? Why do we talk about housing? Why do we talk about inflation? All that kind of stuff um, is because when you look throughout history, the most consistent trend of all time is that when you have uh, disparity in terms of wealth and inequality rises, there are transitions. And one of the great things about having a, a podcast and writing in general is I can kind of track my thoughts over time. And mm-hmm. I said this on the last interview is like, I feel like sometimes I alternate in between being very excited about the future and everything that's going on, especially in crypto, and just being extremely concerned about everything. And I, you know, I try to be introspective about why maybe I alternate in between those two frames of mind. And I think the reason is, I think we're headed towards a point of transition. Uh, history is filled with these sort of transition points. And when governments and people handle them well, then you can see an explosion in prosperity. You can advance the next hundred years, uh, you know, whatever it is. But also sometimes those transitions aren't happened super well or aren't handled really well. And, um, you know, there's more negative outcomes. And, you know, there's there's a great interview uh, that Dmitry Kofinas did with a guy, Simon Mikhailovic, um, that yeah. just really made me think. And there's so many analogies. You know, he, this is a guy who escaped uh, Soviet Russia before uh, the Soviet Union, before the downfall and everything. And, um, you know, Dmitry kind of asked him, like, well, you know, did you think that this was a, uh, you know, a system that could go on forever? Like, were you surprised when it eventually fell? And he was like, we all knew that it was unsustainable, but I was still surprised when it fell because, yeah. you know, it's the difference between knowing and then experiencing something that you think is unthinkable. And I think the one thing that I would look out for over the course of the next decade or so is for some truths that we all hold to be fundamental will change. And the last thing I'll say on this rant about history is, uh, you know, if you go back to Rome, which is the example that I constantly use, for the first like 500 years of Rome, it was a republic. 
Um, and, and that was like core to every citizen's uh, value problem, right? Like we don't have tyrants here. We don't have kings. It was baked into the fundamental like cultural value of the entire civilization. Yep. And then it transitioned to an empire. And the reason that it transitioned to an empire was because they went through 60 to 80 years of civil war. And eventually, if things get bad enough, everyone just says, screw this. <laughs> you know, screw this. I don't care about my ideology. I don't care about the values. Uh, I need certain things as a human. Like, I don't want to be killed or I don't want to have my family killed in pointless civil wars. So that's the reason why related to history. And that's why we kind of bring these things up all the time. Yeah. Um, the, the farther back you see, the farther back you look, the farther forward you can see. Um, you know, you want, you want big ideas, read old books. Uh, there's nothing new in this world, to your point. Uh, you can track everything back to the philosopher kings of, of ancient Rome. Uh, everything from leadership manuals to, you know, ideas on, on how to be a good person. Um, you know, one of my favorites is from Seneca the Younger, right? Failure, cha- uh, failure changes for the better, success for the worst. You know, when people are super successful... Yeah. They actually don't change for the better. They get worse. And when people fail, uh, they actually learn and they, they come back stronger and they become resilient. And, and we have a whole society today that doesn't allow people to fail. You know, we don't keep score in kids' soccer games because someone might lose. We have this whole participation trophy idea. So kids aren't resilient. They don't know how to fail. They don't know how to bounce back. Um, it's, it's endemic in societies as they age. And to your point about this, this tipping point, uh, it's, it's happened every single time, right? When people become uh, full of hubris and they think their way is the only way and they try to impose their will on the masses and, and you concentrate power at the top through cronyism, uh, the, end, the end game is not, is not pretty. And, to your point, it usually ends in revolution, uh, which I'm not calling people to take up their pitchforks, but I am saying that if you're not concerned, you're just not paying attention. And I, and I echo your thought on, look, I, I love Twitter because it's a micro blog. And mm-hmm. I love the fact that people go back and call me out on stuff and say, hey, you said this. I'm like, well, yeah, I changed my mind four times, but thank you for pointing out that I did say that. Um, and I love the, the feedback you get instantaneous. I love the people that, that comment on, on, on what we're talking about. But, but writing, speaking, thinking are things that, that we should all do more of, right? Um, I agree. Just passively taking stuff in and regurgitating isn't really very valuable. Uh, taking information in, thinking about it, forming a belief. Uh, to your point earlier about data, uh, if you if you reject data that disconfirms your hypothesis, you are not scientific. You're anti-science. I mean, science is about gathering data, testing the data, evaluating the data, then forming a conclusion. You can't have the conclusion before you know the data. Uh, but part of the problem is, is how social media works, right? It it feeds us more of what we like. And less of what we don't, and in fact, sinisterly—that's a word—even um, more sinister. It feeds us the antithesis of what we don't like to propagate that, you know, 
uh, feeling of disdain or feeling of hatred or or not acceptance or or confirmation bias of, of oh well of course we're right. I mean, people exactly. need to seek out dis, uh, you know, dissenting opinion. You need to talk to people who you disagree with. You, know, you need to engage in a dialogue and debate in search of truth as opposed to trying to convince the other person of your point of view. Um, so maybe you and I need to, need to fight more. No, I'm just kidding around. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think, uh, and you know, that point that you made about flip-flopping, uh, I know we're running low on time here. I got like two uh, hot seat questions for you here right, right yeah. at the end. But that point, uh, there was a great uh, quote uh, uh, from Suzu, who's an investor at Three Arrows Capital in this space. He said, the desire to be consistent with oneself is the source of poor decision making. The winners of the big short, this is a direct reference to Michael Byrd, but the winners of the big short came to define themselves as bears and proceeded to underperform everyone for 13 years. There's never a need to define yourself. The market does not care who you are. And the political, I've always, you know, people accuse politicians of being flip floppers. There's that great quote from Winston Churchill. It's like, when the facts change, I change my mind, sir. What would you do? You know, what do you do? It's like, no, Lord Keynes. Lord Keynes. Oh, he's giving Lord a speech. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's like, you know, you know, people look at, uh, you know, these politicians and they wear it as a badge of honor. I've said the same thing for 30 years. Like, okay, maybe you should have, you know, not everything has stayed the same uh, for the last 30 years. When I the don't facts understand. change, I change my mind, sir. What would you do? And if, if look, strong opinions loosely held. I am infamous, I guess, for my opinions. Ah, Yusko is just, it's just always so full of these opinions. I'm like, yeah. Opinions is what makes investing possible. If you don't have conviction, you will not act. If you don't act, you can't win. Now, you can also lose, but you have to have conviction. You have to have uh, the ability to, to reach a conclusion. But then you have to be able to change your mind. You have to be able to flip-flop. If someone has a better argument where if information changes or the world changes or you know, technology changes, whatever it is, that's, that's the basis of, of living a, a, a better life is the ability to move forward uh, in the presence of, of increasing you know, change and, and not be paralyzed by it because you cling to your, you know, one view. Plus the other thing is, as you go through accumulated experiences, you have more tools and more data to do the analysis and make decisions. So how could it ever be that the opinion you held in the past is the only one that's right? It doesn't make any sense. Makes no sense. All right, uh, Mark, hot button, uh, hot seat questions here. Uh, I do want to get your opinion on, I guess I should ask if you actually know her, <laughs> to not repeat my mistake, but uh, George Soros' family office this week just disclaimed that they own Bitcoin uh, via their CEO, Don Fitzpatrick, who is yep. one of my all-time favorite people to listen to speak. Uh, she is freaking awesome. Uh, so two yep, reasons why I'm pointing this out. Um, one, just that whenever someone is major as an individual, institution individual, whichever, I love that word, uh, yep. individual, uh, like Soros says that they're in the game, that is significant to me. Uh, this kind of reminds me personally of when Paul Tudor Jones kind of came out and publicly said, hey, we own some Bitcoin and Druck right before the run, uh, you know, in Q3 or Q4 of last year. So maybe a bit of a similarity there. Uh, they don't tend to get things too wrong on the timing. And then the last thing is that they also said... Uh, while Bitcoin is interesting, they're more interested in some of these DeFi applications uh, of crypto in general. 
What's your take on uh, on kind of this story? There are few people who are as legendary of an investor as George Soros. There are few people who have had as many legendary investors work in their office as George Soros. Um, and it, it, it is absolutely and definitively uh, a huge positive that uh, someone like Don has, has made a public uh, discussion of that. Now, not surprising, right? They, they, have, they have been early uh, for decades in identifying trends. And look, there's so many great Soros quotes. I actually wrote a long letter all about Soros and all about all of his quotes and all of his wisdom. Uh, I can even get it to you and we can post it somewhere because it, it's Please actually do. one of my better letters. I, I actually got clients from it. They're, they read that letter. Wow, I didn't know all this stuff about Soros. Um, he is one of the truly legendary investors and his ability to identify talent and, and mentor that talent. Um, but he makes decisions quickly. Um, and he, and the thing I love is he, he focuses not on point outcomes, but on scenarios, right? The idea that, that any of us know what's going to happen is, is folly, right? There's the upside scenario and the middle scenario and the downside scenario. And you have to plan for all of those different scenarios. But the last thing I'll say that, that, that the thing he's really good at is what you call phase shifts. And, yep. you know, things change uh, in stair steps. And right before a big stair step, you'll get a, a phase shift. And, and what happens is um, it's like the molecules in water uh, as they decide to go either to steam or to ice. They start to vibrate wildly. And so when the volatility of, of something starts to amp up, you're at one of these, these phase shifts. And I think that's what we have seen this year. And I, you know, I would not be surprised if, as usual, he and she will be right on. And the, the extrapolation into DeFi, uh, anyone who, who poo-poos DeFi and poo-poos this idea that uh, this transition from TradFi to CFi to DeFi isn't going to happen. They just haven't spent enough time on the technology. The more time you spend on the technology, the more you see that smart contracts are the future for financial services, derivatives. Uh, human beings don't need to be involved. They're, they're fallible. Some of them are actually bad. They do bad things. And, you know, we, in, in code, we trust. Yeah. Completely agree. And if you're, if anyone's looking for a fun read here, the other thing George Soros, uh, I think coined was this idea of reflexivity, obviously super relevant uh, for crypto in general. But if anyone's looking for a fun read, just go read the Wikipedia page for Black Wednesday, which was in 1992 when uh, Soros and Druck uh, broke the back of the British pound. Uh, just an unbelievable story in finance history. And it's just, it's just fun to read about how unbelievable no, it is. Daring it's awesome, but, but reflexivity is one of the most important concepts in all of investing. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's a philosophical, I mean, Soros is, a, is a, truly a philosopher king. Now the first book yeah. that he wrote is horrible. I mean, it's one of the worst books ever written. It's just, it's unreadable. <laughs> but the second book where he talks about the first book and the idea of reflexivity is awesome. And then I said, I wrote this, this piece that, that kind of gives the, 
the summarized, the cliff notes version on reflexivity, um, if anybody cares. Yeah, I mean, if uh, maybe this week or next week we can get that in the the roundup notes, uh, just so folks can read that, because I would love to read it as well. Um, yep. Last big story of the week that I want to cover with you here is uh, apparently the FDIC is said to be studying deposit insurance for stable coins. So, just a couple of key points. So, the that FDIC stands for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp. Uh, it's a key U.S. banking regulator. Uh, for those of you who don't know, in simple terms, it's the it's the government entity that basically insures everything up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in your bank account. So basically, even if the bank, who is really your counterparty that you're putting your money with, defaults or goes out of business or there's a run or whatever, the government essentially guarantees funds below two hundred and fifty grand, and they are looking into doing that for. Stablecoin deposits. This is unconfirmed, I should say. I think Coindesk was the one to broke this. There were about five different sources. Um, feels pretty relevant uh, to me uh, just because from a safety perspective, I'd like to know, right, that anything under 250000 is is basically guaranteed. What do you think about this story in general? Big significant yeah, development, not so significant? Yeah, probably a fad. You know, you knew I had to, you knew I had to say that. Um, Give me the hashtag. hashtag. Probably a fad and the arrow. <laughs> and, I mean, and the, and the rocket. Look, it's a monster development. Now, there's two mm-hmm. sides of it. It's a monster development in that it is an acknowledgement that these are here to stay. So that's good. It's an acknowledgement that they are a viable deposit mechanism mm-hmm. for you know, people's assets. But it's also a statement that we're going to be in charge. We being the regulators and and the overall, you know, kind of Politburo of finance. Uh, and I said, I, I have been an admirer of the SEC up to this point They in their regulation of crypto. They've been measured, they've been prudent, they've been consistent, which is not necessarily their hallmark over all the years. Uh, and I think they've been pretty progressive, right? I mean, like it's crazy that we still have 1930s, you know, uh, legislation that governs regular securities. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, totally. And you know, accredited investor standards, dumb, right? Stupid, right? It's just protecting the rich and fomenting income and wealth inequality. Of course, that's the plan. But I actually think that they they continue to impress me. At least so far, although some of the things that Gensler says are are a little more frightening. Um, but this is a really positive step. Um, you know, some will look at it and say, oh, no, it's sinister. They want to get their dirty clutches on these things. And sure, why not? I mean, what what is an institution or a company that takes deposits, lends them out and pays interest? Well, that's a bank. bank. A so, bank. You know, the banks don't want to call it a bank, but that's okay. Um, and these assets are, are are different than fiat. They've not been deemed, you know, currency yet. They're they're, they're still considered property. Um, so, look, it's it's a step in the right direction, uh, but it's it's kind of like, oh, these things have become tens of billions of dollars. They're probably not going away okay, we better get our arms around them soon. So let's give something good, okay? Insurance is good. Now they need to run it the same way they do. Now the, the thing with the FDIC, it's a beautiful construct. 
as long as less than 3% of the banks fail at the same time. Because that's all the money there is in the system. So it's a very undercapitalized insurance company. And so the idea mm -hmm. that everybody's 250K is safe, just oh, wow. crazy. I did not crazy. realize that. I oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, look, it's, it's run the way it should be run as an insurance company. Everybody pays in their premiums, and then there's a pool of capital. And, and think about it. If, if a hurricane wiped out the entire United States, there wouldn't be enough money in the insurance companies to pay. Now, if a hurricane wipes out one part of the United States, then it can pay and then it can collect more premiums and replenish. And so it's worked great and it's structured properly and it's the right way to do it. But what we all have to remember is it's not, like I, I joke and I, and I love my mother. I mean, I love her. But I joke, you know, she believes there's a little pot of money in DC called Judy's money. I'm like, mom, there's no pot. And I'm like, no, I've been paying in all these years, my money. No, 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 your money got paid out to grandma and grandpa and, and my money's paying you and hopefully my kids' money will pay me, although I don't have enough kids to support me. But um, so it's, it's a pay-as-you-go system and it should be run as an insurance company like Singapore does, you know, Medicare and Social Security. Um, at least the FDIC is run like an insurance company and it actually functions really, really well. Uh, but it got really dicey when uh, La Jolla Savings went under One West Financial uh, and John Paulson, Soros, right. and us actually. So that was actually a really cool thing. So Soros, Paulson, um, you I can't remember the other two, uh, bought 24.9% of the bank at a bankruptcy. The FDIC guaranteed us two times return on our money on day one, uh, so there was no risk. And there was, you, uh, individual can only own 24.9% for regulatory purposes, so there was 0.4 left over. So Morgan Creek got that 0.4%, which was awesome for our clients. So I love the rounding pennies. But again, it was Soros right there at you know one of the great investments. I think we ended up making seven times our money on it. Um, but the FDIC is great. It's a long answer to your question, but it's it's great. I'm glad that you know this construct is being talked about. But what we would need is premiums paid by these financial services companies and protocols into a pool to make it work. And and I and I think we should. And I think it now should it be a DAO instead of the FDIC? Hmm. That would be interesting. Yeah. That's, you know what, the transparency aspect is key because hearing you say that, I had no freaking idea that that's how it worked. That's why, you know, I have thoughts about decentralization and people, people, everyone in crypto is like, decentralization equals good, centralization equals bad. And I'm not sure it's that simple. I do think one of the no, things that we'll, we, we that deserve out of DeFi is transparency. People deserve to at least understand how shit actually works. And I feel like that, that would be enough for me. Now, uh, speaking of progeny and people supporting you, I know you're with your kid in San Francisco, so we've already, but you've already given me uh, a ton of time here. But man, I can uh, feel like we could have kept these, talking because these, these we're getting awesome. into some really interesting and, stuff uh, here. Uh, I, 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 I'm so grateful that, that you, you asked me to join the team. Uh, this is a blast, and I think it's going to be very valuable for us to have this, this long-term history uh, of, of these conversations. 
Yeah, it's a ton of fun, man. Uh, I'm having a great time. And for everyone who's stuck around yeah. and is listening to us this long, guys, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. We ultimately do this for the audience. So drop some feedback in uh, you know, iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or however you're listening to this. Uh, we'd love to get your input. And uh, with that, I will let you go, my friend. I'll see you here All next right. week. We'll see you All next right. week. Have a good weekend.